When I started the business, there were no places in Australia anyway to go and have these products manufactured. So lots of times if you're going into beauty and you need a treatment or a body care or some kind of products like this, you can go and find a wonderful contract manufacturer, no problem, and they'll make it for you. But in my category, the primary category that we play in, scented candles, there were no contract manufacturers doing that. So we had to create our own factory. Welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world. It's a world of changemakers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious women who are building businesses of the future. So strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland. Fragrance queen Nicole Eccles launched Glasshouse Fragrances in 2006 from a spark of imagination and a belief in the emotional power of fragrance to transform the everyday and change the way that you feel. Since launch, Glasshouse Fragrances has quickly grown to become a leading brand in the Australian fragrance market, establishing the scented candle category and dominating it for the last 15 years. She's also founded fragrance brand Circa Home. Not only is Nicole the queen of all things that smell divine, she is also the queen of sales, which is why Anna and I wanted to focus our chat to gain valuable insights. From starting out her career in direct sales, Nicole quickly figured out what not to do when pitching yourself, your product or your service, how to best deal with rejection, and the simple but clever strategies to bypass any gatekeeper to speak to the decision makers. We began by chatting to Nicole about her sales experience and how this has helped her entrepreneurial journey right into Glasshouse. So after I became a makeup artist, I went into B2B sales. And part of that role really required me to knock on doors, boldly, bravely knock on doors and call people and face head-on rejection hour after hour. And it initially going into that field, that's what you have to do. So you become very fearless and you're sort of immune to the feeling of rejection. And that was really important with starting Glasshouse Fragrances because I had to call on a lot of stores that I didn't know and I didn't know how they were going to receive the brand. And I was used to being rejected, so it made it a lot easier. The other thing is, In order to cut through, I had to learn to listen and actually help people and solve problems. So instead of feature dumping, oh, this is everything we do and blah, 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 and dumping every feature that I could possibly think of, I had to think about who is this person I'm talking to? What problem am I I solving? How can I actually help them so that I could cut through? So that's kind of how that really helps me with the entrepreneurial tasks that I had to do for Glasshouse. Mm, we've had a few guests actually say something similar. You have to listen to the problems and then you have to offer the solution. What are some, what, have, what else have been some of your other, you know, great sales techniques that have worked for you? Because obviously selling is just so critical in business, be it yourself, be it your product, your business. What's worked? What's had cut through? So I think doing the research about that customer 
before you you speak to them, one of my great pet peeves is I am approached so much on LinkedIn mm. emails. I don't get calls anymore, thanks to mobile. Yeah, that's possible. You know, yeah. but before that phone would have rung. And there are so many people that have no idea about my business or what we need, and they just constantly call you. And that's really annoying. Don't do that. Find out what that product or that customer or that business is about and work out before you contact them if you can genuinely work with them. Because otherwise, you're wasting your time, you're wasting their time, it's not authentic. Mm. The reason I was credible in sales is because I was ready to walk away if it didn't make sense for both of us. Mm. So I had integrity, and people trusted me because of that. And I would say, you do not need that. And I learned that when I was a makeup artist because the women that I would deal with, they actually wanted to buy everything. Money wasn't an issue for them at Saks Fifth Avenue. They wanted to buy everything, but they didn't need it. And I'd often say, come in with your shoebox, because they all had one of stuff that you've purchased from other people in the past who sold you stuff you don't need. Let's go through it. And I built this incredible following of customers that trusted me because Mm -hmm. of that. Integrity. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, actually. I was just thinking we had a meeting with our mentor this morning, and she was talking about she was talking about sales and how to um, pitch your idea to a customer or a client, and that you have to remember that you're pitching to a person, even though it's a business. The person you're speaking to a person, and so really getting into the psyche of that person is important to understand their problems and then present solutions. Is that kind of how you've thought about sales as well? Well, you have to think about, for me, absolutely. I thought about the business, what problem they had to solve, but then how does that relate to their role? Mm, What is their role in that organization and how are they recognized and what particular problem will they have? How can I help them in their role? And sometimes it's a matter of giving them that language Mm. so that they can then sell it to whoever they need to sell it to. But generally, I was adamant about going to the top. I would avoid gatekeepers like it was my job. And this is why it would be so much harder nowadays. I used to stay late in the office and I'd call after six or I'd get in super early and I'd ring the phone and I would get managing directors on the phone, no problem. Nowadays, unless you have their mobile number, you are not going to get them. So it's harder now. Mm. But that's how I overcame that too. I never tried to sell to someone who didn't make decisions. Right. So if it is a little bit harder to get to the top, today, what what can we do? How can we try and worm our way up the top? <laughs> that, <laughs> Bypass the gatekeepers. It's definitely creative. Mm. So you still have their address. Mm-hmm. Mm. I never get anything in the mail. And I'll tell you what, if I did, I'd be really impressed with the, the tenacity of that person to do that, to find out my address, to find out more about me, to write me a handwritten letter. That's impressive. Mm. You have to, it's harder. So you have to put the effort in. It's not mm. going to come easy. Once you get in front of the right person, you've got to pitch them your idea and you're probably going to come up against some objections. How do you deal with objections and prepare for that? So I learned a technique when I was in sales about isolating objections because lots of times someone will give you an an objection that's vague, that you don't really understand. Mm -hmm. Stop right there. You have to understand it. And you have to keep probing and asking questions until you understand it. Because if you don't, 
It is a one-way conversation, and you will not know how to resolve it. Mm. So it's all about asking the question, oh, stop, I, I, can you walk me through what you mean by that? I didn't quite understand. And then once you know what it is, so if I, and this is all very Dale Carnegie, isn't it, for me to sit here and talk about this, but <laughs> it works. And then once you say, okay, so let's level with each other. If that's really the issue and repeat it, this is what I used to do. And if we could deal with that and come up with a solution around that, would this work? Mm. And you just have to be really direct. And I think Australia culturally Mm. is different to the U.S., but I was selling professionally here. And one of, I think, the luckiest things about that is I I was just myself. Mm. And people would just stare at me. They go, I I literally would get people— Jet jolt back a little bit when I'd ask a question because I was direct, but I got away with it because I was American. Right. <laughs> and now that nowadays I would never do that. I'd had take a much softer approach. Yeah. You can be soft and you can still get to the bottom of mm. it, but you have to probe, probe, probe. Soft but firm. <laughs> yes. Yes, I think so. So, I mean, look, sales, the word can be a bit icky. People, it makes people feel uncomfortable um, having to put yourself out there and 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 sell, especially yourself. Um, I guess, you know, I, I had a mentor that once told me like, swap the word sales for serving. And, you know, it, it which I love, um, obviously, you know, if you're not um, offering your product or your service, you know, that it's kind of at the detriment to these people that need it, right? That's exactly right. I love that. Yeah. Well, and, and I loved it. And I know, you know, I've passed that along to a few other people and they love that too. So, you know, it's the serving rather than selling. Do you have any other techniques or anything else that you kind of will help you reframe the idea of sales or someone that's listening that are like, oh, I hate sales? Well, I hate that people hate sales. Yeah. That's what makes mm, the world go around. We're all it's buying true. something. Yeah, it's what true. we hate is we like to buy. We don't want to be sold to. So we like to discover. We like to purchase. We don't want to be forced. Mm. So sale is a process. It's a very practical process mm. of, of a transaction. I, I just think that it shouldn't feel icky. And you should, as you said, it's about servicing. And sometimes... When I was um, selling in my previous roles, I would think to myself, well, they're bad luck because I actually think I could have helped them out there. It's just about reframing that narrative in your head, I guess. Correct. Around offering value as opposed to extracting money exactly. from a customer or exactly. client. Exactly, exactly. Mm. That's exactly what I think. Yep. So tell us, tell us when a, when a sales pitch has failed horribly. What happened? What did you miss? So I was, now that we're on the topic, so I was, I used to work for um, this company and I sold media contacts in PR. And I was actually selling to a professional sales trainer mentor guy. I don't even remember his name. And I walked into this room and I hadn't read his book. So I didn't know any of his techniques and I did 101 how not to sell. <laughs> it's a good book right there. Book. It's a good book. Yeah. <laughs> and he absolutely creamed me. And I was like 25 and yeah. he's like, so why, why are you asking me that? Why are you asking me that? Do you already know the answer? And he was like so aggressive and so bad and I, just rude. I think that sometimes you have to do your research. That's right. going to help. It won't annoy people. It'll impress them. 
The other big thing is you have to, they say you have two ears and one mouth. So you have to listen twice as much as you talk. And if it is one-sided, if you're doing all the talking, Mm -hmm. you are not going to find out the clues Mm -hmm. that are going to allow you to transact, Mm -hmm. help that person. Because they haven't said a word. Mm. I guess it's all about, as you said, understand, listening to understand the problem and then crafting your message so that it's a solution they can't say no to. Correct. Really? Correct. Mm. And be willing to walk away if you genuinely don't have a solution because it is your credibility as a yeah. professional that is going to last a lifetime. Mm. And what about Glasshouse? So you would have had to have gone and pitched that business to suppliers, possibly investors. How did you craft that elevator pitch? And has it evolved over the years? So my business is Sapphire Group Mm. and I have a couple of brands. Mm. We have Glasshouse Fragrances and we have Circa Home. And I always talk about our brands and what our brands stand for. So Glasshouse Fragrances, as as an example, is the, we are the creators of the most electric scents. And then I talk about what that means. But it really depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm asking for investment in the business, I wouldn't start off with that. It's all about the listener and and changing the message to that listener Mm. and, and, and sculpting it a little bit. I would say something completely different to a retailer, for example, going in to sell into a potential new retailer or selling an existing retailer a new product. So it is crafting the message, but what doesn't change is what we're about as a business Mm. and what we do and who our customer is. That doesn't change. So I talk a lot about that. So um, that's how I, I keep it together. And I think if you're going to try to pitch an idea for investment or pitch your business for investment, um, you need to go in with, you need to be prepared. People invest in an idea accompanied by a plan. Mm. And that plan needs to be defined in some way, maybe not in an incredibly detailed way because you don't know yet. But certainly this is how I'm going to start. Success is going to look like this. I'm hoping by this stage, these are the milestones we're going to meet. This is how much money I'm going to need. This is what I'm prepared to give for that money. All of those details, you have a view before you have that conversation. And then once you have that, people also invest in people that have good instincts, Mm -hmm. that are confident and talented. So showing those aspects as well is equally as important as the idea and the plan. These are just all my little takes on it, ladies. I'm not saying... <laughs> Your lessons, which the are fabulous. Gospel. I'm not <laughs> saying they're right. These are my experiences. Oh, Love it. Great. So I want to... <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about money um, and in particular the early days with Glasshouse. You know, I think oh, m- money can be such a barrier when it comes to building a business. And I know that we talk about it regularly mm. every day. Um, how did you come up with the cash for Glasshouse in those early days and where did you invest it? So when I started the business, there were no 
places in Australia anyway to go and have these products manufactured. So lots of times if you're going into beauty and you need a treatment or a body care or some kind of products like this, you can go and find a wonderful contract manufacturer, no problem, and they'll make it for you. But in my category, the primary category that we play in, scented candles, mm. there were no contract manufacturers doing that. So we had to create our own factory. Oh my that God. required... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. That's not the answer that I was expecting. We had that. to build a factory. <laughs> so we couldn't just say, oh, let's go find a candle maker and we'll just buy a bunch of stuff. No, we had to build our own factory. So that required considerable investment. Mm. And I knew I couldn't do that on my own. Mm. So that's why I was talking earlier about the process of how to get that done because I needed to find a partner mm. that would invest in this idea, which I did. And I did very quickly because that was all considered and planned. Mm. So the initial investment is from the co-founder. Yep. And that was in 2006. That is a huge investment for just an idea that you hadn't received kind of proof of concept or proof of demand for yet, right? Well, there was a step back. Okay. I did do a proof. Okay. So the factory came after a trial. So okay. I had before okay. that... I was making these products in the kitchen. Great. And we had a few retailers that we worked with. And what we were, what we did was we made, uh, I can't even remember, I think it was about 300 items, yep. which you can make yourself in your kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I had a candle maker as well because I didn't have the first idea how to make a candle. <laughs> and um, we selected a handful of businesses, retailers that were like-minded, beautiful shops. Mm. And we basically gave them the product and said, let's see how this works. And then we established a rate of sale, mm -hmm. which you could multiple and scale and you could see how that would look if you were to expand. That gave us the confidence to go, great, we can do this. We know this is going to work. I think it's such an important step, actually validating that your idea is... Um, going to have traction with customers. And we've spoken a lot about that, um, you know, with previous guests in terms of tech products, like how you validate, validate a tech product, but not so much about how someone's validated a physical product before and demand for the product. So that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it's easy to do. Yeah. You just have to figure out how to do it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah. <laughs> so we interviewed another founder recently, um, Olivia from Sh Silk. Yeah. And she spoke to us about one of her early mistakes in the beginning of setting up her business, which was um, investing, over-investing in stock. So she invested $50,000 in stock before the business even launched. And um, so she was sitting on that stock for a long time. How did you know how much to invest in stock in the early days? So we bought just enough for that trial. Okay. And the information <clears throat> from the trial drove the decisions around how much stock we needed. And the other thing is mm. we're buying raw materials. We're converting them to finished goods yeah. in our factory. Yeah. So the conversion costs money because you're, you're our candle makers, they're hand-making all of these mm -hmm. things. But if you don't need it because the demand isn't there, you don't convert it. So then right. you end up with raw materials that have a value. But it's far better than a finished product because you haven't converted it yet. So, yeah. But we had overheads. Mm. We had rents. We had different overheads associated with running a facility. So... It's all for us. It was all about having that that plan and, mm. and trial and understanding what the demand was. And the thing about the demand, which was really interesting, is because we created a category, 
We had no idea what mature looked like. No benchmarks. No idea. Yeah. So we were just growing at this insane rate every year wondering what, and, and we talk about it, when we're, when are we going to hit the ceiling? When are we going to hit the ceiling? We have never been in decline in the nearly wow. 15 years we've been wow. in business. And we have so many competitors. Mm. And the most interesting thing about it all is when I moved here and started this business, I came from a market that was, by all accounts, one of the biggest beauty markets in the world. So Mm. we had access to lots of incredible brands and products across the globe. And Mm. they would launch first in Bergdorf Goodman, and they would have a six-month exclusive. And when I moved here, I noticed there was... I love Australia. I love everything about it. And I love Melbourne and secretly. I wish I lived here. Oh, move here. Move here. (laughs) I guess it's not so secret anymore. Yeah. But... um, so we had access to all these incredible products and I moved here and I thought, well, where, thought, where's all the products? Mm. And there was Crabtree and Evelyn who had, mm. had a presence here. There was L'Occitane. And so my original idea was to start a fragrance brand and it would be all about beautiful fragrance and it happens to come in lots of different things. Body lotion, shower gel, eau de parfum, candles, all of it. But What I didn't realize is, and then I thought, okay, let's do the candle first because there are none of those here. Mm. And then it was just boom. So running a business, you need capital, you need Mm. all of Mm. that. We couldn't fund anything else because we created a category and it was growing more than 100%. Then it would Mm. slow. It was 100% for the first sort of three years. Then it slowed to 75, then 50. And it's like, when are we going to, when is this crazy thing going to let up? So- Great, great problem to have. Yeah. Really busy, busy time. And it's still busy. So mm. I'm very, very lucky. You've said that you you want to be known for creating world-class products. And I think, you know, the product is also quite um, uh, affordable. It's affordable, but it's high quality. And I know at the, in the early days, you know, you priced it. It's obviously gone up, but, you know, it was affordable then. How do you balance creating an affordable product with making it the best product out there on the market? So affordability is relative. Mm -hmm. Mm. When I started Glasshouse, uh, $30 for a candle, that was a lot of money. But it was a lot less than the really premium brands that were being brought here and they were more like $100. And the reason that they were is they were being shipped from the US or Europe sold to a distributor that would then on sale to a retailer. So everyone's adding margin mm. to make it, to make money. Mm-hmm. And then a product ends up at a hundred when really it's real value is more like around 20. Yeah. We did that directly. We made it ourselves. We sold it directly to the store. So the product costs what it costs. It was all about making a beautiful product and charging yep. what it costs yep. in Australia. And, over the years, costs have changed. Mm, I mean, mm. look at our dollar. When I moved here, the Australian dollar was 81, or and now it's 67. Yeah. A few years ago, it was a dollar. Like, <laughs> where does it go? But now it's just, you know, right at the bottom. So it's a challenge because yeah. while Australia, we make everything here, our raw materials, our fragrances are from France, our wax is from Canada and the US. So we're bringing all these raw materials into the market and then we're 
creating these artisanal, beautiful products by hand and the costs change over time. So I still think even today where we are prestige brand and we're a little more expensive than anyone else, the Mm. quality is unsurpassed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, they're an amazing product. Yeah. What real effect does that fluctuation in the dollar have on the business kind of quarter to quarter or day to day? Is it hard to manage? It stinks. <laughs> yeah. I have a wonderful CFO who manages it, but I hate sitting in board meetings and talking about it. But it's the business reality. A, We're not the only ones dealing with course. it. Of course. When everyone has mm. the same problem, it makes it a lot easier. If it was our unique problem, everyone, my business partner would be looking at me going, so what are you going to do about that? But there's nothing you can do. So mm. you do what you can to absorb those costs, yeah. to take a hit to the bottom line, because you want to make sure that, you know, one of the things we do is we want to people to enjoy these products every day. Yeah. They are life enhancing. They relax you. They charge you. They do whatever you want. It's highly emotional. It's important work that we do. Yeah. And we want to make that accessible to people. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the emotional power that your products have. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Fragrance is highly, highly emotional. It marks occasions, moments, but most importantly, it changes the way you feel. So like makeup do or an amazing dress or the right decor, all of those things will mark the moment, make you feel a certain way. Fragrance is no different to any of those things. It is another tool for you to express yourself, to come down, to go up, to feel beautiful, to feel relaxed, to feel anything that you want to feel. Our products suggest what that could be for you, but the reality is, is everyone is different. And fragrance is such an incredible motivator in so many ways. I can't actually imagine life without it and never have. Mm. And it's so subliminal too. You know, for example, in the summer, when you smell grass that's being cut, signifies renewal and newness and it makes you feel something, even if it's just fleeting. Yeah. That's the power of fragrance. It is cinematic. It is transformative. It is such an incredible thing. And that's why I've always been so interested in it. I want to jump back to something you said earlier around um, you you built a category essentially in this market. And I think, you know, you've spoken a little bit before about how timing was on your side. You recognized a gap and you worked really, really quickly to fill that gap through creation, the creation of this brand. Nowadays, the beauty category is pretty saturated. There are so many brands. It's quite cluttered. How do you stay ahead and differentiated? And how would you suggest other women who are women who are wanting to start beauty brands think about differentiation? So we think and lead with our talent, with our heart. We think about what is new and different. I feel it is our Glasshouse Fragrance's responsibility to bring trend and newness to the Australian market. Somebody has to do yeah. that. And that is what we do. So I'm I, I try not to I try hard not to pay attention to what everyone else is doing. Rather, we work with incredible perfumers. We are 
very lucky to work with some of the best. And it's because we are the size that we are. We can mm. ring up the best fragrance houses. We can talk to them. We can create magical things. And it's all about the talent. And it's all about the vision about how are we going to create newness. And I hire and try to retain talented mm, people yeah. that have zany minds <laughs> that just think absolutely outside of the box. And when you're smaller, that's hard because mm. what if it doesn't work? You're you know worried about maybe taking risks. I don't care. I would rather launch a complete failure and have tried and repulsed people than to have everyone love or go, hmm, you know, think, be wishy-washy. I'd rather it be spectacular and some people love it and some people hate it, but it's all about new, exciting, thinking differently. How do you think about an example like that and its effect on your brand? Or do you not really consider that when launching products? Like like if you had a huge failure, do you think about what effect that would have on your brand or not really? Well, huge failure means I mean, you picked a fragrance that is just <laughs> didn't work. Yeah. did not land. I mean, let's put failure into context. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, we do not have a culture where people are free to fail. Yeah. I've got my gorgeous Florence out there. She knows what I'm talking about. We don't have a culture where it's you're free to fail, but we do have a culture where you're free to try cool yeah. stuff. Yeah, cool. And break boundaries and try new things. So, um, I mean, when I say failure, we could make a, I don't know, moth-scented candle and it would sell. So, yeah. it, we wouldn't, but. I mean, never know. <laughs> Lamb, Rogue, and Josh. Well, there you yeah. go. That well, will be the next. Step. Oh, oh God, that's interesting. That. So on that, I mean, how do you how do you forecast the trends? Do you go by gut feeling? Do you have a process? Is, is it these zany minds that are coming up with these crazy ideas that you lean into? It's a little combination of both. So we draw inspiration from the wildest of places, and it could be anything. One idea leads to the next. There is a lot of creative people at Glasshouse Fragrances that really just think out out there. And so there's that. A lot of it is um, the, the perfumers themselves. They mm. might discover a material that, you know, we haven't worked with before or they think is kind of interesting. But because we're open to that and they know that we are, they'll show us. Mm. And sometimes we'll say to them, look, stop showing us, Jasmine. I don't want to <laughs> see another two bros. Can you please, I know you've got something in that office, in that room of yours, that's absolutely extraordinary. Pull that out and let us smell that and then we'll start. So there's a lot of art direction that goes on, a lot of honesty, a lot of openness. Yeah. I have a question off the back of that, which is a bit rogue, but you've spoken about how now you're, you're an established brand and you're working with the best perfumers in the world and you have clout because you're, you're big. How would you suggest businesses that are smaller that are trying to kind of get buy-in from suppliers and struggling because they're small, like how do you manage that and manage people to kind of, you know, buy into you and help you? Because I think that's been one of the struggles that I've had going from a big business where suppliers Mm -hmm. would do anything to my own business or our business where suppliers might take 10 years to get back to us. Oh, (laughs) I know. I know. Small fry. It is, I think it has everything to do with the right suppliers and partnerships. Yeah. Mm. Everything to do with that. If someone ignores you and doesn't call you back, don't use them. 
find someone else, go to a trade show, find another supplier, convince someone with vision. A lot of people have vision. They might look at your business now and go, oh, they're too small for us. But they go, you know what? I believe in that person. I think they're onto something and they're going to get bigger. So you know what? We're going to make sure we give them the level of service because I can see this going somewhere. And that's what happened. I mean, we weren't working with these big fragrance houses in the beginning. We still did a heck of a lot of work on art direction, Mm. working with perfumers to try to get what we wanted. Now it's a lot easier because they're more talented. But um, you can manage. It just takes, it's just a little bit, it's a more of a pain initially. Yeah, and yeah. you spend a lot of time training suppliers with what you want. I mean, the print supplier we use now, I had no idea. So the first time we used them, they did, anyone who prints products would know, they did things like pharmacy boxes and really simple box box constructions, not like beautiful embosses and foils. Mm-hmm. They had no idea. But I didn't know. I just figured, oh, printers can do everything. Yeah. And we went through years of back and forth, but they were the only people that I could work with. So, but they're willing. So I'd say, well, why can't we do this? Let's, okay, we'll try. And we just went back and forth until now. And now they're one of the best prestige printers. They can do anything. Well, that's it. They've upskilled and they now have another offer for other clients. So it's like, what's in it for you? What's in it for me? How do we make this work together? Um, I love that. I think that's a really you know great piece of advice. So we want to ask you about this concept of fast versus slow business because We've spoken to a lot of founders who have a different take on it. And, you know, especially in tech, in Silicon Valley, there's this whole mentality of move fast and break things. Iterate, 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 learn, test, move forward. Is that the kind of business mentality or philosophy that you adopt? Or are you more um, of the viewpoint that slow, incremental, sustained growth is the right approach? It's a very tricky question because personally... And I think most people would agree that slow feels better. Mm-hmm. You have time to think. You have time to work through things. You have time to consider, talk to others, make the right decisions. But for us, we didn't have that chance because we had the first to market advantage mm-hmm. and the perceived entry barriers were low. So when mm. the perceived ant- entry barriers are low, people think, oh, I'll make, I'll get into that business. I can do that. And so that's why getting the customer base, building your business faster for us was so important. It took a few years before we had any competitors at all. That's crazy. Wow. It took a few years. Wow. And most people still think that, for example, candle making is easy to do. And anyone listening who's made their own candles Mm. knows that it is so not (laughs) because they never come out the way you think they are. And Mm. it takes a while to build that expertise. Mm. And if you're not in control of the process because you're not, you don't have your own factory, you're relying on a third party, it's impossible to get your head around the chemistry or the, how Mm. that works. So, Speed for us it was important. I think it has to do with where the life cycle of the category is. Yeah. And I can understand yeah. in tech why they have to go fast because clever people that understand technology can you know quickly make things and they have an idea. I suppose they're trying to, Be, to get ahead of it. Yeah. 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 Something we talk about a lot. <laughs> we do. And finding that, that right, right balance. balance. 
It's right. I mean, it doesn't apply to every, you know. It yeah. doesn't. And look at candles, for example. Yep. If one more company, where can't you buy a candle nowadays? You can go to the petrol station and they're going to have one on the shelf. This is not the right time to enter. Folks, yeah. you've missed it. <laughs> Stay you away. Missed you've no. missed it. I'm sorry. I don't know how you could out-innovate this right. category yep. to get in. Yeah. You've missed the boat. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> so that is a consideration. Definitely. Yeah. Talking about considerations, you've said that, um, you know, it's good to follow the money, right? Where the money's going to come in. I've heard you say that. And the lesson was to consider the outcomes um, of that decision that you make on the product and, of, and on the customer. Can you speak to that a little? If we're talking about decisions we make mm. to retain more cash in the business, mm. um, brand is first, customer is first. Mm. I have always believed that those have to be your priorities and someone clever is going to work out how to make that all, that that those dynamics from a cash perspective add up or from a profit mm-hmm. perspective. Yep. As long as you're not, Oh, there was a I Love Lucy episode. Do you remember the ones where they were making the salad dressings, the two ladies, and they're charging? They were like, yeah, we sold like 5,000 salad dressings, <laughs> and they're charging less than it costs to make them. Oh, God. So you can't do that. No. <laughs> but what I mean is you have to put the customer first. You have to mm. put the product first. And and it for for us that we're building a brand it's not a quick thing no um we have aspirations of being the first australian fragrance brand that has global reach mm-hmm. so part of the reason we've just launched this amazing range of lifestyle fragrances beyond home fragrance is because that is how we be, we want to start with the end in mind and when we start to export and build these other markets that's where that's how we're going so that's an investment over time. For for us, the big the big ticket is going to be at the end of all of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess you're, if you're if you have that customer first lens, you're investing in ideas, products, services, possibly that the customer will see value in, mm-hmm. which ultimately should lead to more cash. Sales, right? Yeah. Sales. Yep. I mean, yeah. You'd hope so. <laughs> Absolutely, and brand loyalty yeah. and investing in the right people, the right chemistry, the right perfumers, all of that to build great products. But there are a lot of great products out there. So it's it has to be more than that. It can't just be a great product. You have to offer something else that takes that customer further than fragrance. And that's what we try to do every day. Can you give us some examples? Well, for example, um, when you think about the names of our product, Midnight in Milan, Forever Florence, Kyoto and Bloom, they're visceral. Mm. The back of our packs take you somewhere. We want you to go somewhere when you use our products. They don't just relax you like a lot of certain rituals that you have a glass of wine, lighting a candle. We want our products to take you beyond that. And we want our customers to know how the quality is absolutely, we do not compromise on that with what we make at all and never will or on the fragrance and the artistry aspect of what we do. So with the fragrance, the way we construct them, the way they're presented, they are unique and that's really important in our industry. We want to change gear a little bit and ask you a couple of questions around cultivating confidence. Um, 
we talk about this a lot with our guests and with the women in our community and it feels like this idea of imposter syndrome is kind of a shared experience, particularly for women. Is it something that you still experience? I think everyone experiences that. There's this phrase, I wish I was the person I was pretending to be. (laughs) (laughs) And I try not to compare myself with others. I'm different in a lot of ways and so is everyone. Mm. There's another phrase, don't be yourself, everybody else is already taken. So if you just focus on that, I find that I, uh, look, I'm not the pinnacle of what a confident woman should be, but I certainly try not to feel uh, insecure or spend all my time on Instagram wishing my photos look like that, or I don't really try to, because it's distracting. Mm. And we all have other things to think about, our families, our work, what makes us feel good. Anything that distracts from that is uh, wasteful, I think. So stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Speaking of lanes, you've said that starting a business is a marathon, not a sprint. When you feel like you've been running and running and running and running for a long time and your legs are sore, (laughs) how, and you might fall down, how do you get back up and how do you know you're in the right lane? Blind faith. And is a bit of the, I'm in the lane because it has to be felt. You can't always see it. You can't. So it has to be felt, not not known. It's it's not known. It hasn't happened yet. So you have to have faith. Uh, I also think that it is my resilience, positivity, my belief that keeps me going. And I truly love what I do. Mm. If I didn't love it, I would have given up a long time ago because it's hard. Mm. Yep. But I love it. And it's what I love to do. So that love keeps me in the marathon. Yeah. And sometimes you can burn out a little bit and you don't even know it's coming. But that's when you go, okay, I really know now I need to take a couple of days, clear my mind, do something else, stop thinking about glasshouse fragrances, stop thinking about circle home, do something else for at least a day or two just to get out of the zone. And then I'll snap right back in. Mm. Do you make space for fun in your business? Because it's hard. Like it can be a slog at times. And I think it's important to make space and remind yourself to have fun. Is that something that you like actively try and do? In our in our business, yeah. we actively try to do that. Yeah. Now, we are all very busy and we're all very focused. So we, we could probably do a lot more, <laughs> but we have a job. So, yeah. uh, but we certainly love to have fun. We love laughing. We have lots of different events we do at work. We have fun club. We have a really diverse group of individuals that work in our business from all over the world. So we have, we all love food and cooking. So we have these big international food days. We celebrate every holiday we can from Halloween to Chinese New Year. I mean, any reason to party, we'll have <laughs> oh, one. Oh, great. We can, just we, want, we're there. can we have there? <laughs> we, Send we us just, the invite. That's right. We just had, um, we launched our incredible new website last week. We were day drinking. We had a magnum of, I don't know what it was. We had what, what we had a Merlot, uh, Moe Magnet. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. hello. We were day drinking. It was great. It was great. I love it. We're in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're fishing me that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a good fish. <laughs> What's one thing that you need right now? I was thinking about that question because I thought you might ask. 
<laughs> and it is such a tough one because it's such a vulnerable question to ask. But the yeah. first thing that came to mind is that I wish this nasty coronavirus would go away mm. because my good mm. friend Chuck is stuck in his apartment. And he's been in there for about four weeks in Beijing and he called me and the poor guy, has a ment- he's having a mental breakdown. So I want that to end. I would like the days to be longer because I need to sleep in sometimes and I cannot because I have to get to the office and have meetings because I'm often talking to people in the U.S. at 7 a.m. So I feel like as our international expansion plans are in progress, I'm working longer hours. So I would like longer days so I can still have my dinner and my glass of wine after work and still have all the things I want to have. Those would be, right when you say right now, those are the two things that come to mind right now. Yeah, they're tricky ones, aren't they? <laughs> it's a tricky question. Tricky ones to solve, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you could speak directly to someone that's listening who might be struggling in their business or in their role, um, they might be wanting to give up, you know, they've kind of hit their tether. Um, what would you say to them? What's one piece of advice that they can take away that can just help inspire them to keep going? Uh, I think that when you, and look, I've I've had lots of examples when I'm in that sort of state. And what has always helped me is to really go back to the drawing board and write everything down. So you might have a view about where you want to get, but what are, what are the milestones to get there? Writing them out and then looking to see where they could fall over. You know, do I not have enough money or time or what is it? Or is it a really good idea? idea that has legs, but I just need these five things to make it happen. And then having clarity around that, talking to others, getting their feedback. But then once you're clear about what the problems are, how do we individually work through those problems? It is really about that level of detail to work out. If it, It's not an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think it should be. If you're leaving your job because you hate it, great, go find another job. But if you are leaving your job to start a business, well, that's a big deal. What is it that you're going to do and how do you know you're going to be successful and how are you going to protect yourself to make sure you have can earn a living and that and that you'll achieve success? I guess it's taking the time out to be introspective and as you said, sometimes you need that thought space, creative space to actually just go, okay, what are, what are the problems? Why do I feel this? Yeah. And like, how do we overcome that? Yeah. Yeah. Taking a practical approach, approach to it. Yeah. We'd love to give you the opportunity to uh, say thank you or give a shout out to a lady brain or a woman in your life that has given you a leg up or has helped you in some way with uh, your business or your career. Okay. I can do that. So I want to give a shout out to Karen James. She's the founder of Commonwealth Bank's Women in Focus, who without which I would not have had a network in the early days to help me challenge some critical business problems head on. Fabulous. (laughs) Nailed it. Nailed it. (laughs) And on that note. (laughs) The power of networks though and the power of mentorship is just so important, isn't it? Even just for support and mm. to draw on other people's expertise. And I know you've spoken about that before. but When you're dealing with difficult business problems, it can fester into a mental illness very quickly. If you do not have people, you can talk to about it. Oh my God, that's so true. You don't know what you don't know. It is very simple. Yep. So how do you overcome that? You talk to people that are as clever as you are or more clever 
that have more experience that you trust that you can lean on and they're getting something out of it too. See, that's the thing. A lot of people think, oh, I don't want to bother that person. They're getting something out of it too. They're, they are giving back mm-hmm. their knowledge and expertise and that feels good. I personally would love to help as many people as I can. And I don't have a lot of time these days, but I certainly make the time to grab coffee with people all the time. And I can, I'm happy to sit with you and talk about your business challenges. And I may not be able to help, but if I can, if I can give you a jewel or help you with a problem, that's what people are about. Life is not, you know, just to be in your vacuum and make money and feed your kids. It's about caring for each other Mm -hmm. and taking care of each other. And so I think that's really, really important, especially for all kinds of people that might feel a little bit marginalized. And women have certainly felt in that category when it comes to business. Yeah. And um, so I think that's really important. Women love to help. I mean, we all love to help people. So, yeah, I love that message. And you're helping by just sitting here chatting to us today. So thanks. And vice versa. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So many of us feel uncomfortable with selling ourselves. When we think of sales, we think of the sleazy car salesman. So thank you so much, Nicole, because this chat really reframed sales for us. One of our key takeouts is that sales actually makes the world go round. It's about problem solving. It's about adding value and building long-lasting relationships. So the good news is, even if it doesn't come naturally to you, there are a few simple things you can implement that will help you get your pitch across the line. Number one, do your research. Only approach customers or clients that you can truly add value to. And when you meet them, have a solid understanding of who they are. Number two, when you're selling, avoid the feature dump. Instead, listen, probe and ask questions to uncover the real pain points and struggles. And lastly, craft your response so that it talks to how you can solve those specific problems you've just heard. And remember, you're not selling, you're serving. We'd love to hear your takeouts from this episode. If you also have any tips that might help someone else with selling, please share them with us. We're over on Instagram and LinkedIn at lady.brains or you can shoot us an email. Yes, we are still on an email at hey at ladybrains.com.au. Ladyland is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolich.